If you would please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 19. The topic this morning is going to be uh, the Christian's relationship to the Word of God. And while we won't necessarily be expositing Psalm 19, in order to focus our thoughts on the truths of God's Word, uh, that would be helpful to begin by reading, I think, one of the most precious passages that speaks so clearly to the role that the Word of God plays in the life of a believer. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7, verses 1 and 6, speak to the general revelation of God, how God's glory is heralded from all of creation. Beginning in verse 7, the Word of God says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and make righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warmed. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your commandments, your statutes, your law, your precepts, your rules, the fear of you, Lord, all of these words that the psalmist used to try to get his arms wrapped around the treasure that is the Bible. I pray, Lord, as we consider this theme this morning, that you would stir up our hearts to love you and your word, to not be a people who are ruled and reigned by their own ideas, but that we would be a people under authority, people who say with the psalmist, your word is my delight. Father, I pray that you would empower me to speak clearly, that your spirit would drive home the truths of your word to the hearts of all who hear. God, I pray that you would empower the listener to not just hear and understand, but to make these things a reality in your life. We ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. Amen. If you would turn to Acts chapter 2, that's where we'll be camped out in all of our sessions this week. Acts chapter 2. We see in the book of Acts a, a snapshot, a picture of the early church as 
Pentecost has fallen, the Spirit has come. In chapter 2, people are being saved literally by the thousands. And beginning in verse 41 of Acts 2, it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done there through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So this picture we get of the church really as it's in, in its infancy, as it's being born just... I mean, weeks after the ascension, as the apostles are beginning their ministry in, in Jerusalem, we get a picture of things that we ought to be uh, devoted to, in, if I were to use the language um, that the apostles use in this text. They devoted themselves to these things. We said there were about four, I think if you add breaking of bread and understand that to be the sacrament of the supper, you could say five. But for our purposes, we're going to look at four, and we looked at prayer last night, this morning we want to look at what does it mean to be devoted to the Word of God? As a Christian, as a person, what does it mean to be devoted to the Word of God? What does it mean theologically? What does it mean practically in your life? Um, I've got a few sayings that I try to get a lot of mileage out of. I'm sure most of my folks by, by now can quote half of them. But one of the things that I say often is this, theology has consequences. What you believe will impact your life. And it really almost doesn't matter what area of theology we're talking about. What you believe, by, by nature of it, will impact and change your life. It's similar to what A.W. Tozer said, where he said the most important thing about a person is what comes to their mind when they think of God. That's the most defining, life-shaping truth about them. What you conceive of, when you think of God, will shape everything about your life. If you apply that same principle to really almost any area of Christian doctrine, you, you can chart the course of someone's life. If you show me what you believe, I, I, I can... With some degree of detail, I can show you where your life will end up. If you show me or show anyone what your doctrine of the Scripture is, I can tell you a lot about what your life is going to look like. Don't we all know folks whose doctrine of the Scripture, or doctrine on how God reveals Himself, maybe that would be more appropriate, changes and directs all of their life. So the topic that we talked to this morning is one of vital importance, and it really drives at the question, does God still speak to His church? And if God still speaks to His church, how does He speak to His church? And if God speaks to His church through various means, what impact does that have on His people? Well, I think it really goes without saying that God still speaks to His church today. God actively, fully, clearly speaks to His church. I, I, I don't really know anyone who would disagree with that statement. 
Where we get into disagreement is where you would say, well, how does he speak to his church? How does the word of the living God come into the life of, of men and women who live in 2018 in Canada or Kirkland or, or wherever we are? How does that truth come into our lives? So if you're taking notes this morning, let's kind of break our thoughts into, again, three pieces. We want to first look at uh, this single truth. God still speaks to his church. I want to kind of wrap the two questions together. Does God speak and how? We'll, we'll answer that under both of the, uh, under this single heading. God still speaks to his church. In Acts chapter 2, when it mentions they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, uh, what that is alluding to or, or speaking to is that as the disciples taught the scriptures, that the people of the church were giving themselves to that doctrine, that they were, they were devoting and disciplining themselves to be present, to hear God's word faithfully taught. And the, the term apostles teaching doesn't just mean New Testament teaching, it means all that the pastors and elders of the church were teaching them from the scriptures. The Word of God is how God speaks to His church today. That's the, that's the how. Does He speak? Yes. How does He speak? Well, He speaks through Word. And again, if we had time, we'd talk about how He speaks through sacraments as well. But they're, they're, they're bound and tied together. God speaks through His Word. And how we define or, or, or what our bibliology is or how we describe our theology of the Bible will then dictate to us how we submit our lives to it. Remember in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. And sometimes when we hear passages of Scripture that we're very familiar with, we, they almost lose some of their edge a little bit. They, they become so common that they, they cease hitting us really squarely in the face. Listen to that again. All Scripture is breathed out by God. These are His very words. We use the word inspiration to describe this, this breathing out of the Word of God. And I say in our liturgy at our church in Kirkland, every time I read um, the Scripture, I say, this is the Word of the living God. That should strike us as sober, as authoritative, as, as an event that is unfolding right in front of us. We're not hearing the thoughts of men. We're not figuring the ideas of a culture. We're not looking at the dictates of a new fad or wave that's coming through our society. What we're hearing, when we hear God's Word read, the very words of the living God to His people in time and in space. That should, that should never cease to amaze us that God speaks to His people. That God directs the course of his church. I know when we read through our Bibles, kids, maybe some of the stories that stand out to you as being some of the most dramatic episodes in the Bible 
uh, would be, it seems like the burning bush, where there's this, this bush that is on fire and yet doesn't burn up, and it says that God was in the midst of this burning bush, and what did he do? He spoke out to Moses. A couple chapters later in Exodus, where he descends on Mount Sinai, and there is smoke and fire, and the mountain shakes. Why? Because God is speaking. God is revealing himself to his people. He's talking to his people. Or we think of those scenes in the Gospels where I believe at three different occasions, it's almost like heaven is torn open. And the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son. And it was such a, a loud speaking from heaven. People thought it was thunder. That They tried to explain it via natural causes. Or we think of Jesus speaking and preaching and teaching to the, the crowds at the lake or on the mountain or the places where he did. We look at those occasions and we say, what a marvelous thing for God to speak to his people. I wish I, I could have been there, right? That, those are our thoughts. Oh, what it would be like to be at Sinai, to hear the voice, or to be at Lake Galilee and to hear the incarnate word of God speak to us. Man, what I would give to be there on that day. Is there a fundamental difference between those days and any day that the Word of God is read to you? I don't think there is. Oh, it lacks some of the smoke and thunder and earthquakes. Uh, it lacks some of the, the trembling that we might fear or have if there was a whole mountain shaking up in front of us. But fundamentally, doctrinally, theologically, there isn't a difference. This book that we have in front of us, each of us, this Word of God is as much the Word of God as what came to us on Sinai, or at the bush, or at the lake, or from heaven. And we should treat it with no less seriousness. It's not any less authoritative. While we become, it is a common thing to us, we'll talk about what a blessing that is later on, we shouldn't take it for granted. This is the same thing that Israel heard at the mountain. Don't ever lose sight of the, the blessing and the, the gravity that the Word of God is. Peter says in reflecting upon seeing the Lord transfigured on the mountain, he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says this, this scripture that you have in your hands is the product of God's work in the life of men, speaking clearly as he did, and, and it supersedes and is more fully confirmed than any of the experiences even that Peter had in his life. It's a more sure word. That's what the Bible is. It's God's word to us. It's God's truth. 
It's true truth, as some would put it. And you might say, well, okay, I understand that this is God's word. This is God's truth. And this is, this is true, but, but do we need this plus other things in our life? Do we need this plus experience, this plus ecstatic encounters, this, this plus what, whatever it might be, this plus uh, odd feelings or whatever it is, do we need the Bible plus something? Maybe we don't argue that the Bible is the Word of God, but maybe we wonder whether or not it is sufficient, full. Another way we talk about it, kids, is, is the Bible enough? Enough truth, enough authority to direct all of your life? And the answer is a resounding, a resounding yes, absolutely. It is fully sufficient. Uh, the second London Baptist conf Confession, I think, states it so clearly and crisply. I, I want to read it to you this morning. Regarding what the Bible is, what the Scripture is, the second London says, the Scripture is the whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for God's own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. Life and, and these are either explicitly stated by necessity or inference, and they are contained in the Holy Scriptures. What, what that means is that everything that's in the Scriptures, in the Word of God, when we look at it and we say, what is this sufficient for? Second London states it exactly right. Everything regarding God's glory, that's a big category. <laughs> Everything that you need to know in order to bring God glory in your life is contained in this book. Everything that you need regarding man's salvation, again, a huge topic, is contained in this book. Everything you need regarding faith, or another way we could say that is, what am I to believe about God? It's in this book. And the last category, maybe the one that we struggle with or want to find ex uh, other avenues of truth in, everything regarding life. How am I to live as a Christian? It's in this book, either explicitly stated or by necessary inference. Everything we need is in this book. You don't need anything outside of it. As much as I love other theological books, I love the Puritans, I love the Reformers, uh, uh, I, I love the, the fruit of godly minds, all of those are not anywhere near this. And they're only good to the degree that they help me understand this more fully and more rightly. We are to be people of one book, one book only, and that is the Word of, of God. When we talk about it being sufficient for life, what we mean is it lacks nothing. I don't know about how the word sufficiently is used uh, up in Canada, but in, in the U.S. when we say sufficient, often we use it in like a diminutive sense. Like, how was, how was dinner? It's sufficient. <laughs> like, they, we usually don't mean it at, in, in a good, full, overflowing, abundant way. But that's the way we use it with, with the word. How is the word? It, it, it's sufficient and full. It lacks nothing. It's perfect. There's no area where I, I look at it and I say, you know, it's really kind of lacking in this topic or this area or this stream of truth. No, it is 
full and overflowing with the truth that we need regarding God's glory, man's salvation, what we are to believe, and how we are to live. You don't need to look anywhere else. God has given you everything that you need. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He spoke to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He has created the world. And the author of Hebrews is saying that, that God has, throughout time and history, spoken in, in different ways. At the bush, or at the mountain, or through Elijah, or Elisha, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Obadiah, or Hosea. He's used men in different times and cultures and places to be the vessels by which he speaks. But in the last days, in the epoch that we're in now, he's spoken finally in his son. And through the apostles his son has established. So the last word that comes to us is the word of Christ and the men that he ordained to continue, would be the twelve apostles. That is the final, full, complete Word of God. We, we don't lack anything outside of that. In fact, the second line in that same paragraph continues. It says, nothing is ever to be added to the Scriptures, either by new revelation or by human tradition. The Word that we have is spoken through the various ways, that's referring to the Old Testament, and Christ and His Apostles that revealing of God's will and truth lacks nothing. It's set, it's established, it's final. It doesn't need any excess chapters stapled in the back of your Bible. If that's the true doctrine of Scripture, is it any wonder to us why the early church devoted themselves to the teaching of the Scriptures? It should be no wonder at all. I mean, if that is true, and, and, and it is, if that's what the Bible is, the full revealed will of God, including everything that you and I need for life and belief and godliness and God's glory and salvation, is it any wonder that they gave themselves to it? It shouldn't be a wonder at all. It should cause us to wonder is uh, why we don't give ourselves to it more than we do. So let's look secondly. The first is, is that, does God still speak to the church, that theology of the scripture? Yes, he does, and here's how he does it. He does it through his word. The second point we want to look at this morning is the ministry of the word in the church. That's what the word of God is. How does it play itself out in the, the life of a local body, the life of a local church? How does it live and breathe among us? We can divide up how the word is, uh, working among us in kind of two categories. We think of it as private ministry and public ministry. And so first, let's consider the private ministry of the Word, what we usually call Christian devotions. Your, your, your personal reading and studying of the Bible is what we want to talk to here. Firstly, how does the Word of God impact the life of God's people? Well, it does so in private as each of us seek God in His Word, as we read it in our homes and, and, and have our own copies and multiple copies and multiple copies on our phone and, and more available to us than any other 
church in history has ever had. I mean, if you just wind the clock back 300 years, or certainly 400 years, if your church had a copy of the Bible, you were considered a blessed congregation. I mean, they would actually literally chain the Bible to the pulpit to make sure that this most valuable of objects was not stolen. You didn't have a copy in your house. And then as we've grown and, and began to print, we in the last 300 years have the Word and access to the Word on a level that has never in church history been seen. We have it, we're word saturated when it comes to availability. And I don't know, I don't quite know if we're word saturated in how we engage and encounter God. It's my understanding that we, or it's my belief that we need to be devoted to the Word of God in private. If asking, do you pray, was as impactful to me as, as it was when I first read it from Ryle, I could ask you a similar question. Do you read? Do you study God's Word in private? And again, others can see if you're at church or if you're not at church. But if you are devoted to the Word of God in private, only you know that. Only you know if you daily seek Him in His Word. And we can begin to, as Christians, I mean, I, I was born and bred and raised in the church. And it was just kind of this thing that you knew you ought to do. And I'll, I'll admit, even as a young person, not fully knowing why it was I had to read the Bible. You knew you should. But you didn't necessarily always know why. It was this box that you had to check because good Christians read their Bibles. We don't read our Bible just to check a box. We don't read the Bible just because we have to. We should read the Bible because we have an insatiable desire, an insatiable hunger for God's Word to permeate every area of our life. And that doesn't happen accidentally. You don't get the Bible, you don't get God's truth through osmosis. If you put it under your pillow and sleep on it, it's not like the truth sink into your head. I wish that might be the case, but it isn't the case. It actually takes seeking these things out and studying these things. The Christian should be a, a man or a woman who says, I am too prone to think my ideas are truth. My way of thinking is right, and I need God's truth to direct and shape all of my life. I, I want to read a verse to you and ask you if you believe it. You might say, well, if it's a verse, like obviously I believe it. Oh, okay, but sometimes there are verses in the Bible that we say we believe, but they haven't permeated down to the level of our heart. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 says, know this. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you believe the truth that that verse teaches? That if you're a Christian, if you're a man or a woman who's been saved by God's grace, that more than I need food in my life, I need His truth. Now, I love food. I don't miss a meal. I, 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 when I get hungry, I, I do whatever it takes to hunt and find and destroy a meal. 
Do we do that with God's Word? Do, do we get up every day and say, today I need God's truth in my life? More than I need breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I need God's truth. And if I run out of time today, meals can get skipped before this meal can get skipped. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that this is truth that I so desperately need that spiritually I will be malnourished if I do not go to Him in His Word and read and faithfully apply myself to the Scriptures. We should be motivated to read God's Word based on, on our need of it. We should sense that and, and know that we do not have truth. I often pray before I, I read God's Word. I recommend to anyone not to just dive into the Word without seeking God's face first. And, and often what I will pray before I read the truth of God is this, God, I'm a fool, and you are all wise. I'm ignorant, and you know all things. I'm weak, you are strong. I need you this morning, would you teach me? Again, I wouldn't recommend... You don't pray that as a mantra or some magical incantation or anything like that. But what, one thing I want to remind myself of is this. I desperately need God in my life. I'm a needy creature. And so long as I forget I'm needy, so long as I think that I'm like the man in the parable that Jesus told, I'm full and have need of nothing, I'm not going to go to His Word for truth. I'm going to go about my life I will read when it's convenient or when I have a, a felt need, but I'm not going to make it the daily ebb and flow of my life. I need, you need, to remember we are needy creatures. We need to know that every other avenue and input into our life, whether it's the media or social media or friends or other worldviews, all of these avenues coming into our life, they pump falsehood and, and, and false agendas into our bloodstream, as it were, and we need afresh the truth of God to correct the way we think. How many times have you thought, I don't, I, I don't really have an illustration of it, but you have a way of thinking about an area of life, and then you hear a sermon that totally confronts everything you've believed on that topic, and you're like, how could I, how could I get away with thinking that foolishly for all of this time, like, how did I not read that before? We need to submit all of who and what we are to God's Word. It's not just motivated. Your daily Bible reading shouldn't be just motivated by me. That's part of it. But it should also be motivated by a genuine love for God. We want to talk with and hear from the people that we love. I mentioned the other, I guess it was last night, that I enjoy coffee with my wife. I enjoy hearing from her. Or when my friend Ryan calls, it's not like when he calls, I'm like, oh, it's Ryan, get out. I don't need to talk to him. I'm like, no, this is a, a friend of friends. I want to hear from him because there is love in our relationship. We're love with my relationship with my wife. We want to hear like from our kids. Sometimes as parents, we want to hear a little less. But we, in general, we want to hear from our kids. We should also want to hear from our God. The Christian that sits down and opens his Bible daily wants to hear from the one who loves them, 
preeminently. We should be driven to our study and submission to God's Word, not based out of fear, not based out of a, a cold, detached sense of ought to, but because we love God. We want to hear Him. And we want to submit our lives to His truth. I think it's dangerous when the Christian life begins to wander away from love-driven duty. And just duty. Just cold-hearted, do it. I'm not saying base all of your reading when you want to or feel like it and don't when you don't feel like it. Like, no, read the Bible every day whether you feel like it or not. But pray and repent for the days where you don't. And, and start there with God. God, today, I'm, forgive me. I don't want to be here, but I'm here. Change my heart, please. It's cold. There's A.W. Tozer prayed like, I want to want thee. I thirst to be made thirsty. I don't know how many times in a week I have to pray that and seek God and just say, Lord, I, I, I'm a fool and I love my own ideas. Please unseat that fool and rule and reign in my life by your word. Pray that we'd have the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 1997. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How many times do the psalmist speak of the, the sweetness of the word of God? That it's sweeter than honey or the drippings of the honeycomb. And there's this experiential goodness and love that flows from the Christian's life who loves the word of God. Please, Christians, don't look at this as cold-hearted duty. Read because you love your Savior and you want his truth to permeate all of your life. That's private, the word in private. Let's look at the word in public, what we call preaching. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself. Odd that he would use that very same word, isn't it? Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to the teaching. This is, I believe, I believe it's taught not just in the Scriptures, but I believe it's seen throughout all of church history. The primary way that the Word of God comes transformingly into the life of the believer is through the public ministry of the Word. We contend to... I, I can only speak from my own kind of context, uh, but, but in the American church, we're, we're very individualistic. And so we think of our Christian faith as like me alone with my Bible in the basement. Like that's, that's me, and everything outside of that is auxiliary or, or it's appendix. It, it, it's good, but the heart of it is me in my basement with my Bible. It's not the way the New Testament speaks of it. The primary way the New Testament speaks of the Word of God coming into our life is assembling with the saints and hearing it proclaimed in public from then that God is called to herald forth this, this truth. And that's not to diminish. I, obviously, I just got that on a section on private... Um, devotion to God's Word. We're absolutely 100% on board with that. We believe that. We see the benefit of it. But do not cause it to lead you down the path of diminishing or thinking less of the public ministry of the Word. No, that's 
New Testament-wise, that's the primary. That's the way in which God changes His people. To say otherwise is to be at odds with all of, not just the Scripture, but church history as well. Consider for a minute, again, we can be, we can become accustomed to the way that church operates. I mean, if you've been in the church, I've been attending church since I was a few weeks old. And so you, you just, you can get into this pattern of we come here, we sing, we sit, he talks, we go have snacks. Like that's the, the pattern you get into as a kid, the snacks, are, that's what you're trying to get to is the snack time at the end of the service. And we can, we can almost hear and endure the sermon rather than see it for what it is. Think, um, uh, think with me for a moment about what is a sermon. God calls and equips ordinary men to lead his church. He calls and demands that that man, your, your pastors and elders, pray, study, pray, agonize, and wrestle over the word of God with you on his mind and on his heart. And he does that all week. He wrestles in private with God over the truth of God with you on his heart and mind. And the repeated pastoral prayer is, is begging God, how do I apply this truth to your people in such a way that is both faithful but builds them up in the faith as well. So he, he wrestles and prays for you and for the word in private and all week is bathing this sermon in prayer, agonizing over it with you on his heart and his mind. You assemble on God's day, the day, we'll talk about this on, I guess, tomorrow. You, you assemble on the day that God has decreed and set for this to happen with the people with which God has saved and redeemed by the blood of his Lamb and before the foundations of the world called and elected and now brought and saved and you sit next to people who have God's spirit inside of them from every tribe, nation and tongue he's assembling a bride you gather with that bride the living word of the living God is opened in your own language read to you explained to you illustrated so that you can see it and then applied to your daily life so that you know how does this change the way that I communicate with my spouse? How does this change the way that I think about society, how I treat my neighbor, how I get up in the morning? Not only is that sermon explained, illustrated, and applied with you specifically in mind, but the very Spirit of God is present. He's there. And He's empowering, illuminating, and enlightening His Word to the heart of everyone who hears it. It's not just that this, a speaker is speaking, and you hear it, and, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know the Amalekites did that thing. That's a unique piece of knowledge. I'll take that. I'll try to remember that. And, but, no, the, the very Spirit of God Himself is active among you when the Word of God is preached. And He is empowering the Word to go forth into your heart, to change your heart, to transform your life into Christ's likeness.
and to shape a room full of sinners more and more into the likeness of their Savior. That is no small event. That is no trifle. That's no small thing. In fact, for God to give a people these things, a body to meet with, a scripture in their language, and a qualified called man of God, those are, if you read the Bible, those are special marks of blessing. You're a blessed people. To have a, it's, it's, it's kind of nice that John's not here because I get to kind of build him up with uh, while he's away. You are blessed to have a man like that that loves you and cares for your soul. Like, that's rare. I don't know how many friends I've known have moved away to other cities and when they repeatedly tell me, I can't find a church where the man of God faithfully preaches God's word. I can't find a people who love God's word. You're blessed beyond. Imagine that each week the word of God is opened and explained to you in ways that is rare. And, and sadly, it seems to be becoming more rare. Turn it, if you would, to Isaiah 55. I, I want you to see this process explained by the prophet. This is probably my favorite passage on preaching. As we start reading it, you'll wonder, this isn't about preaching, but it is. Isaiah 55. Let's begin reading in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, excuse me, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, do you see where preaching comes in here? So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, confession time, most of us stop reading there. When we have this memorized, we stop memorizing it. Do not stop at verse 11. Keep going. Verse 12. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. I see why we stop at verse 12. I guess it's an odd scene. Verse 12. I'm not sure I've ever seen that. But look at verse 13. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. It's using quite powerful imagery. If you were to visit my house in Kirkland and, uh, and you were to look at my lawn, uh, it, it's very well manicured moss and weeds. I don't know if there's any grass whatsoever in it. And if I were to water that mess, what do you think would happen? More, more, more weeds, more moss would grow. I mean, it's not going to magically sprout, you know, grass or golf course quality grass. If you water weeds, what, what do they do? They grow. That's just, that's just how we experience, even if you have a garden where you've planted good things and you water it, the weeds tend to grow. Isaiah says something incredible. Supernatural happens when God's word goes out like water. Because it falls on weedy soil, doesn't it? 
It falls on a heart that is marked, verse 13 says, with thorn and briar. And as that water of the word waters my heart and your heart, what happens? Do the thorns grow? No. The cypress tree sprouts up instead. The myrtle tree grows. It's powerful imagery, isn't it? That when the word of God goes forth into your life, into my life, when it is faithfully exposited, faithfully prayed over, faithfully applied to your life, and you faithfully come and submit yourself to that teaching, God is rooting out of your heart briars and thorns, and he is putting in their place cypresses and myrtle trees. He, he's changing you more into the likeness of your Savior. And it's, it's slow at times. And there, there's some Sundays where the light goes on. And, and you just, you're like, I can't see the world the same way ever again. But there's a lot of Sundays where, where it's slow, faithful growth. And really indiscernible when you're in it. And then you look back over five years and you go, man, the Lord has really grown me. The Lord, while I didn't discern a big movement necessarily, God has changed me. I'm not who I was five years ago. That's because He has sent faithfully into your life the Word and is patiently rooting out thorn and briar from your heart. And He's using His Word to do it. Is it any wonder, friends, why the church in the New Testament devoted themselves to this. It's, it's no wonder. Thirdly, lastly, and most shortly, how do we cultivate this in our own life? How do we cultivate a, a heart and a life that yields itself to God's truth? Well, again, let's look at cultivating the word in private, cultivating the word in public. Cultivating the word in private uh, similar to prayer, and, and I believe word and prayer ought to walk hand in hand. So what we talked about last night in cultivating prayer, hitch it inseparably to your pursuit of God in His Word. Have a plan. Have a plan to read God's Word. Now I'm going to, what I'm about to recommend, there's nowhere in Scripture where I can say, thus says the Lord. I think we see it illustrated. I think every Christian should try to read through the Bible in a year. Again, you can say, well, it's not in the Bible. Well, if you look at the Feast of Israel, and if, uh, if you faithfully attended those, you systematically heard God's Word read to you through the course of those feasts and those festivals. So for, for just the normal Christian, strive, I would encourage you, to strive to go through the Bible once a year. Try to... In your reading, develop a plan. There's a thousand different plans out there if you want Robert Murray McShane's plan or a chronological plan. or There's all, just look it up online or ask your pastor what plans he recommends. But have a system that you can attack the word in a, in a fashion that you get through all of it. Because all scripture is inspired by God. And while Ephesians is a really rich and easy read, Leviticus is some tough sledding. And so I need, personally, I need a system that drives me to all of what God's revealed because it is all for our benefit. So my, my encouragement, 
uh, would be to read for breadth and study for depth. So have, have a plan where you're taking in the breadth of the Word of God, but also have times and intentional studies where you are trying to drive deeply into these things. You're struggling with a sin. Study that sin out specifically in God's Word, or you are counseling a friend. Study, go deep on that topic. So have breadth and depth in your approach to the Word of God. Lead your family in the Word of God. I remember, um, I think it was, Doc, oh, I know it was Dr. Beakey. I think it was a story of his own life, not a story of his dad. Sometimes I get them confused. But he was saying that he, I think it was a story where he got, he actually got like abducted in Europe and he thought he was going to die. Um, he was kidnapped and um, they told him before that, if, hey, if this certain mob, like, they're, they're active in the area, if they get you, like, you're, we'll never see you again. And they, they took him for some reason. And um, he said a lot of thoughts were going through his mind. And, and someone asked him, like, what, you know, did you have thoughts of what I wish I would have told my kids? And he said, no, honestly, I didn't. And he said, because we have done family worship for the time that they were at home, he said, we've walked through all of what God's word has said, and I've told them everything I have to say. He said, so there was nothing we didn't talk about. And I thought, I want that. <laughs> I want that. I don't want to be abducted. <laughs> but if I was, I want to be able to look back at my life and say, you know, I, I have no regrets. I've walked my wife and my children through all of what God's Word has said, and we've spoken plainly of difficult topics. If you read through the Bible with your kids, you're going to encounter difficult topics. But have a plan in private, read for breath, study for debt, commit yourself to um, leading your family in the Word of God. And one other uh, helpful thing that I've come across that I would recommend to you, and again, the goal is faithfulness. So don't think that I'm going to read for four hours every morning. Like, okay, if you're there, awesome. If you don't have any reading plan right now, don't start at four hours. It's, it's not going to go well. Um, Dr. Beaky recommends a plan. He calls it 10, 10, and 10. If, you don't have, if you're not used to 30 minutes in the morning, go 5, 5, and 5, or 3, 3, and 3. Whatever, wherever you're at, start there. And his point is this. Read for 10. Meditate for 10. Pray for 10. What he means by meditation, it, again, we don't have time to get into it all this morning. He, he basically means turning the scripture that you just read over in your mind. So what it would look like is when I would read it in the morning, I'll, I'll single one verse out. I'll say, I want that one verse to, to stay with me all day. So I've read for breath, but I grab that one verse. And I sit and I think about it, and I mow it over in my mind. And it's preparation for prayer, that you actually pray through that aspect of it. And you... Take, take verse 13 of Isaiah that we read, you know, instead of the cypress, instead of thorns of cypress. And you just think, through, well, what are some of the thorns in my life that, that, I, that the Lord is uprooting? And, and, and what are some things that I've seen him growing in me? I'm saying you're, 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 walking, you're talking to yourself, you're walking yourself through this application and driving that word deeply into your mind because you're not going to remember four chapters. You're not going to be like, yeah, I read, you know, all of this progression through Israel's history, and there were, you know, these kings of Judah. Like, you're not going to take that with you into the day. But you can take where it says, uh, and they walked in the ways of the sins of their fathers. Like, oh, no, I can say, hmm. 
what sins have I made peace with in my life that are normal but ought not be normal? You can take that into your life and then you can pray that. So I would recommend the 10, 10, and 10 or 5, 5, and 5 or whatever, whatever you're able to do faithfully. Cultivate a private prayer life that relishes the Word of God because you love God and you want His truth in every area of your life. The second would be cultivating the Word in public. Again, be faithful. Um, again, this is really nice that John's not here because I can, I can say things <laughs> that, uh, that I would once say. Nothing is more discouraging than to pray over the Word of God having certain folks, I mean, you, you pray with all of your people in your mind and then to preach it and not have them there is so discouraging. Be faithful in public worship. Be faithful. I get that there's times for sickness and, and life take you out. When, when the, we understand that. But be faithfully committed to the body. For your own sake, but also for the sake of others. Sometimes we don't understand, we'll hit this more with fellowship, is when um, the Spirit gives each of us gifts that are to be used communally within the body. And when someone isn't there, it's like the body limps that day. Because that brother or sister isn't there actively participating and, and being who and what God has called them to be. So be faithful to attend public worship. Be faithful to, to hear. Prepare your heart for the message. Uh, if we expect pastors to go into the pulpit prepared, it's not fair to expect church members to go into the pew prepared. So it would be unacceptable for John to show up like, I don't know what we're talking about today. Uh, I'm going to find something here. You'd be like, whoa, whoa, this is not good. Well, how many times do we stumble into church service late, disheveled, dragging one kid and walking another one? We sit down and we just, we just try to endure it. Prepare your heart for that. God will speak. Are we ready to listen? Um, I don't know if you guys have a way of getting it. I'm sure if you asked him, he would do it. Uh, find out what the sermon text is beforehand and pray over it the night before. And pray over it the morning of. Just sit down with your Bible, read it, and incorporate your family to say, okay, here, here's, here, here's what's coming. Pray through that text. God, God, would you show us? Would you drive this into our heart? Oh, God, you know our temptation is to be distracted. Would you focus our mind? I mean, just, and it doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be like a four-hour prayer session over the, that text. If you're able to, that's great. But prepare your heart the night before in the morning of worship. There was a pastor that I had in seminary who said uh, Sunday morning begins Saturday night. Get to bed early. Saturday, if you want to stay up late, that's what Fridays are for. <laughs> Saturdays are to go to bed early so that you're rested for the Word of God. Our enemy would love nothing more than for the Word of God to fall on tired ears and not be caught. That's a shame. It's actually to your spiritual detriment. Go to bed early. Prepare your heart. Come with a sense of holy anticipation and sobriety. When you come into God's God's house on God's day with God's people to hear God's word, be excited to hear what it today, God, what are you going to teach us today by your spirit and word? Come hungry to the table. Come ready. I don't know if, you, if, you, if you're like me. You guys have a Thanksgiving. 
Canada, right? Yeah. You guys, you guys have stolen our idea. That's cool. But, uh, I had a Canadian friend, and she would do Canadian Thanksgiving in America. So I got double Thanksgiving in different parts of the year. I loved it. It was a great idea. But on Thanksgiving, I, I don't feel like me. I don't eat the morning of. Like I, I, my eyes are set on that meal. I'm ready for that. I come with anticipation. Come that way to your sermon. Come ready to hear. Come ready to receive. And, and I, I would say that there needs to be anticipation, but also fear. Oh God, may we not be hearers and not doers. Oh God, my, my fleshly temptation is to hear this and not have it change me. Oh, don't let that happen. Don't let me walk out the same way I walked in. May we be people whose hearts and at times our mouths echo what Samuel said in 1 Samuel 3.10. Speak, your servants listen. May that be the way we approach each and every time God's words preached to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift that is your word. Thank you for faithful men. Thank you for men like John. We do pray that you preserve him and protect him. That he would have years and decades of faithful preaching in this congregation. I pray for this people, for this church, this congregation, that they would be faithful to your word. That their lives would be marked as being a people under authority. That they are shaped by your truth. Oh God, dislodge in us our reliance on self and our obsession with our own thoughts and drive us to your word we do pray that you would root out the briars and the thistles we pray and ask O oh God that you would cause the cypress and the myrtle to spring up in our heart that you would make us more like our savior but we know that you will do that your word tells us this is the will of God, your sanctification. And while we can pray, know that you will do it, Lord, we know that you often use sharp tools, difficult truths to hear. And we pray that you would rebuke us in your word, correct us. And Lord, where we're discouraged, build us up. May we not be a, a people who are um, mopey and, and, and always um, under the cloud of sobriety, but that, we, that there would be a joy that comes from your word too. Like our God speaks and we hear him. That's a great thing. But God, I pray we'd be able to balance both of those. A fear of you and a joy in you. For your glory and name do we ask this. Amen. Amen.